Now, the talk for today is on the theme of effort and non-effort, what needs to be done. And I want to begin with a verse from the, um, the suttas where the Buddha said, in describing his early practice, he described his early practice before his enlightenment this way. He said, with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed mind with mind. While I did so, sweat ran from my armpits, just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him, and crush him. So, too, with my teeth clenched and my tongue pressed against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed mind with mind, and sweat ran from my armpits. Did anybody practice that hard? In this last session? (laughs) He was a serious practitioner, this Buddha. Um, He continued, But although tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness was established, my body was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by the painful striving. He considered, was this the appropriate path to liberation? He had established unremitting mindfulness. He had continuous um, access to the the arousing of energy. He wasn't slothful, but he also felt his mind uncalm because it was weary, tired from the uh, painful striving. So fortunately, he considered another way. And that other way of practice, he recollected a moment when he was sitting under a rose apple tree as a young boy, when he quite spontaneously entered states of quietude, of calm, of absorption and happiness. And he wondered, might this be a path to enlightenment? And so tonight I want to speak about this dynamic of effort and non-effort, because the Buddha realized that that painful striving might not do it. But he also didn't tell everybody, just go hang out under the rose apple trees and spend your day twiddling your thumbs. There is a dynamic of effort that is very useful. I think we have to respect the rigor of the Buddha, because he wasn't slothful, he wasn't lazy. Have any of you seen the image of the starving Buddha, the one where all of his ribs show? It's an incredibly beautiful image of a person who is completely committed to his aim. We need exertion. We need dedication and commitment. This is necessary in order to continue our practice over time. That willingness and courage to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the present moment. Even when that present moment is painful and difficult. But if we're always striving without knowing rest, then our mind will get fatigued and we won't feel the strength that we need to continue the practice. So there's another approach that has developed over time, expressed very beautifully in a verse by Neosho Ken Rinpoche, where he said, Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. 
beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Are you in touch with your weariness, with the exhaustion of mind that is beaten helpless by conditioning and neurotic thought? Do you feel that weariness of continuously replaying stories again and again in the mind, of continuously seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. When we look at our thoughts that occurred during the last meditation period, how many of them were useful to you? Were any of them useful, unique? Did any of them improve your life, give you a great new idea. Too often our thoughts are just this restless energy moving around and around, filling up our time and fabricating a sense of being me, being someone, being special, being important. But in this construction of self, we often construct just habitual patterns, and we're not actually being a friend to ourselves, a friend who is awake and alert in the present moment. We live in a world of fantasy, hardly aware of where we are right now. So look just now to what extent are concepts coming between you and a completely awake experience of the present moment. During your meditation period, were there concepts about the breath that seemed to come between you and the experience of the breath? Sometimes when we're just sitting and feeling the breath, we're really thinking, that's an in-breath, that's an out-breath. It's a concept. Can we drop below the concept so that we're actually present with this particular in-breath, this particular moment of out-breath? Too often our energy is not focused on what's really happening in the present moment, but we're entertaining ourselves. And that entertainment keeps us from being aware not only of the sensations of the breath, but it keeps us from being aware of the fatigue of the exhausted mind. And so we don't recognize this yearning, this hunger for stillness, this desire for true rest. Sometimes we can carry that activity from the mind right into our meditation practice. When I lived in India with my guru, Punjaji, he often used an illustration of an airplane when he spoke with me because I loved to meditate and I liked to try. I liked to do things. And he would say, Shaila, you've boarded the airplane. You bought the ticket. You packed your bags. You went to the airport. You've boarded the airplane. Now just sit and watch the view. Buckle up. Enjoy the ride. Why do you keep getting out of your seat and trying to push the plane? (laughs) And I loved this image because 
it's often how it feels when we keep trying to make the present moment happen. (laughs) Well, it's happening. When we keep trying to make awareness happen, well, we're aware. When we keep trying, trying, trying to do everything in the meditation, to adjust, to improve, to fix, to manipulate, can we sometimes just find ease in that natural openness that leans back in full awareness and experiences this moment just as it is? So this illustration of the airplane raises the question, are we in a position in which effort is required or is instead alert relaxation required? What does it mean to meditate but not make excessive effort? One time I was in India and I was sharing a guest house with um, a um, with a friend, you know, one of those little um, call them darn salas, um, and I was I had had a cold, an awful cold, um, and so I was just sitting in my room, sitting up on the bed, leaning against the um, the wall with my legs crossed, my hands on my knees, my eyes closed, sucking a cough drop. And she walked in and said, oh, I'm so sorry I disturbed your meditation. And I said, no disturbance, I'm just sucking a cough drop. Is that meditation? What makes something meditation? Is it the legs crossed? Is it the presence or absence of, of a cough drop? Is it a particular quality of stillness? What would make that experience either a meditation or not a meditation? How do we know what is a meditation? When you sit down in here, what is the difference between the moment before the bell rings at the, you know, to, to mark the end of a meditation and the end of the meditation? If nobody started speaking right away and there was five minutes between the bell, would your meditation have ended? If so, what activity ended? What were you doing that ceased? Does meditation require a certain posture? Sitting, walking, standing, reclining. These are the four primary postures that the Buddha taught. But we also teach mindfulness while driving to work, while drinking a glass of water, while washing the dishes. If you've attended a meditation retreat, you know that structured into the retreat program are what's called work meditation or a yogi job. And it isn't just to get the retreat center clean with free labor, although that may be 99% of their motivation. I don't know. But it serves a really fabulous function because it integrates the mindfulness into activity. So we're mindful as we're folding laundry. We're mindful as we're chopping scallions. We're mindful as we're setting the table. We're mindful as we're washing forks. We're mindful as we're mopping the floor. And so the mindfulness gets integrated right into daily activities. 
the Buddha taught mindfulness in daily activities. Now, they didn't have computers in his time or telephones, so he didn't teach mindfulness of telephoning. But he did speak about mindfulness while speaking. He didn't talk about mindfulness while driving to work, but he did talk about mindfulness while walking to the village for alms, which, quite honestly, is monks' work. <laughs> Their livelihood, one could say. He didn't teach the exact same forms that we have now, but he taught mindfulness while bending, while reaching, while lifting, while dressing, while speaking, while listening, while eating, while washing one's bowl, while defecating, and while urinating. He taught mindfulness in daily activity as well. Is that meditation? What concepts do we hold about what we think we're doing when we meditate? Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche said, Leave everything as it is in fundamental simplicity, and clarity will arise by itself. Only by doing nothing will you do all there is to be done. I think there are many approaches to this quality of effort in a meditation practice. And at different times, we're going to need to apply different qualities of effort. We can't all always, it's like the airplane example. You do have to buy the ticket, even though it's a drag and you wait on a hold or you, you have to go do it on the whatever, you know. You do have to pack your bags. Nobody does that for you. You do have to do certain things before you can sit there and watch the view. Like Ajahn Amaro used the example one time of, you know, if you want to take a rest, you first have, if your bedroom is upstairs, you first have to climb up the stairs and then take a rest. So at different times, we're going to need to have different qualities of effort and ease in our practice. When I was um, practicing in the forest monasteries in Thailand, that form of practice required extremely diligent practice, very effortful. And we would practice, um, you know, night and day with very little sleep in very um, austere kinds of conditions to strengthen the, um, to strengthen the attention and work with, um, work with this effort. I was out of order here. Um, I also practiced a retreat in India one time with a teacher named Christopher Titmus, who, who, by the way, is going to be in California in two weeks, and I'll be teaching a retreat with him at Spirit Rock. So if you're interested in that retreat, um, that is also a, a available. Um, Christopher had suggested to me because I was in a very diligent mode in my practice at that, t- that time, dead, dead eager to not let a single moment go by without mindfulness. And he challenged me to not practice mindfulness. You know, maintain the schedule. Sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk throughout the day. But don't be mindful. And so I was supposed to sit and walk doing what? Practicing not being mindful? How do you even not be mindful? 
it was a really wonderful practice for me to sense what it was I thought that I was doing. And one of the realizations that came through was how little effort would be needed. I quickly realized how pervasive and natural and available awareness actually was. That it didn't require a lot of doing. Now, on another time, I was sitting a different, with different Vipassana teachers, and I was asked to make a commitment to 14 hours per day of formal sitting and walking meditation. If I blew my nose, I could reduce it by 30 seconds or a minute. If I went to the bathroom, I could eliminate that time. Of course, don't count showers, don't count putting on your shoes, nothing. Just the sitting and walking time would accumulate to 14 hours. So, I mean, I spent a lot of time like, checking my clock. But, um, <laughs> um, but it also asked for a very energetic and diligent quality to accumulate that many of formal sitting and walking hours because I didn't realize how much time was spent in transition. Neosho Ken Rinpoche, one of my Tibetan lamas, um, gave me an interesting instruction. In fact, it was pretty much the only instruction he ever gave me because any time I asked him a question, he either blessed me or gave me this instruction again. <laughs> he had a great way of picking up his, um, his um, prayer book and pounding my head with it. I don't know if I left stunned with a slight concussion or just a total bliss, but I loved it. <laughs> and whenever I spoke with him about my practice, he always gave me the same instruction, just two words. Like I didn't get it the first time. Well, like obviously didn't. <laughs> so he bong, 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 and then give me the same instruction again. Those two words were, just relax. <laughs> just relax. For years, I got the same instruction. And then if he was giving the instruction in front of the group, when he'd say, just relax, he'd throw his arms back. And he'd lean back and he'd open his mouth and he'd just go, just relax. With this incredible expression of total ease, complete ease. Now, every time I went into his room to greet him each day, he was practicing. He was either meditating or chanting or was using his prayer book or using his prayer beads or pounding somebody on the head. <laughs> when he said, just relax, he was not saying, go to the beach and hang out and get a suntan. What was he saying when he said, just relax? Milarepa said, Return to your natural state without effort or distraction. Know the way of such relaxation, fortunate ones. So what does it mean to meditate without doing the meditation, without contriving it into an activity, without fabricating a meditator? It doesn't mean that we should just hang out doing nothing. Because too often, if we just hang out doing nothing, what happens? 
we just replay the same old conditioning in our minds. And most of you come to centers like this and want to learn meditation because you've already got the insight that what you've been conditioning in your life isn't the whole story. There's got to be another way. And you want to intervene into that pattern. You want to shift it towards the wholesome. And then you want the support to cultivate the wholesome. So when we, we don't want to just only um, say, oh, relaxation, do nothing. And then continue to replay greed and hatred and delusion and selfishness and cruelty and, um, and neur- neurosis and uh, person, all, all the stuff, all the stuff. Sometimes there is something that we can do in our practice. So on the one hand, there's effort, and on the other, there's non-effort. There's doing, and there's non-doing. What is it that we're doing when we meditate? A certain amount of effort is needed to overcome the obstacles, especially the classic hindrances of greed, hate, um, Uh, sleepiness and dullness, restlessness and distraction, and um, skeptical doubt. We need to make a certain amount of effort to overcome, to face these obstacles, to understand them and to overcome them. Our effort, though, can also sometimes be directed not so much toward obstacles in practice, but just seeing the nature of things, understanding impermanence, having a direct experience of change, having a direct experience of the emptiness of things. Our effort might also be directed sometimes towards just tuning ourselves to the unconditioned. We may not even feel like that's much effort to just align ourselves with a recognition of the luminous clarity of the natural mind. How much effort does that take? So the question of effort isn't just a matter of trying harder until sweat runs from our armpits. Nor is non-effort just a matter of hanging out until we go along with habitual tendencies. But skillful effort requires a wise response to whatever the current conditions are. So I want to mention a couple of practical things to consider regarding effort. The first is periodically in a meditation session or throughout your day, you might ask yourself if the amount of effort is correct. Is it too much or too little? It's a little bit like tuning a stringed instrument. If it's too taut, it won't be, sound right. And if it's too loose, it won't sound right. We want to tune the instrument so that it's right on pitch. In the same way, we adjust the quality of our effort so that it's not too much and not too little. But it's not just amount of the, quali- the, the um, amount of effort, the quality quantity of effort. We also need to consider the quality of effort. Is that effort appropriate? Sometimes we'll need a very coarse kind of effort, a strong effort, and sometimes we'll need a subtle and gentle effort. Sometimes we'll need to be quite cutting and definite with strong resolution, and other times it makes more sense to be accepting 
allowing, spacious and receptive. Sometimes we'll need to be strong and directive. And sometimes we'll just need to see where this mind state is going and observe with a very relaxed um, curiosity to see something through, to ride something out. Sometimes we need to be definite and resolute and other times flexible and responsive. Given the current conditions, how much effort does it take to be with this moment, this breath, this step? What's the quality of effort that's needed? Can we adjust our effort right in the midst of a step, in the midst of a breath? Can we bring skillfulness to this aspect? Sharon Salzberg, a Vipassana teacher, often uses the example of eating a Uh, She uses the example usually of broccoli, although once in a while I've heard her say a carrot. Um, (laughs) But she says you have a plate of steamed broccoli and you have your fork and you want to eat it, right? So you take the fork and you pierce the broccoli. Now, you have to take a certain amount of effort to do that. If you take that fork and you stab that broccoli, you could go right through the broccoli. It could go shooting across the table. The plate could break and it would make a big ruckus. And you wouldn't get your broccoli. But also if you just kind of like hold the fork and it flops around in your hand and you kind of wave it over the broccoli, you're also not going to pierce that broccoli and get it to your mouth. So you want to adjust the quality of your effort. Now this may seem pretty obvious with uh, broccoli because most of us are able to get food into our mouths. But I have seen people trying to do things with inappropriate amounts of energy. Do you know anybody who's had surgery for repetitive stress injuries caused by nothing more than moving a little mouse across the table? How much does it weigh? It's not heavy. And it's a repeated activity. But if we're doing that with a little too much force and strain, we could cause great injury even though it's just a few ounces of weight. Almost any activity, if we bring too much energy to it, can cause even damage to our bodies or our minds. Now, most of you meditate with your eyes closed facing me, but I get to peek once in a while. And, you know, you guys didn't look too bad, but I've seen some rooms where people are meditating with this scowl and their eyes strong and frown, um, frown and like furrows on their brow. And I'm thinking... Oh, relax. But then I've also seen people interpret relaxation to like sleeping. So again, it's a matter of finding that balance. What is just enough? Often what's needed is a willingness to adjust the effort, to look not just at the object, but our relationship to it. And that moment of meeting the object of meditation, how clearly are we meeting it? If we're meeting it with such force that we're distorting it, then it's too much effort. Such as if we're feeling the breath, but we're really trying to make it longer or smoother or controlling it, too much effort. 
if we're not quite needing the breath and we can't quite find it and we can't quite feeling it, feel it, then maybe we need a little bit more effort. Often the, the quality of effort that we need is a diligence, a vigilance that continues to adjust the, the quantity and quality moment by moment. We'll each have tendencies. Some people are, um, have the conditioning of being a, a little laid back, a little lazy. Procrastinate, put space, I'll get to it eventually. And so come into the room, sit down. And if there isn't a real strong intention at the beginning, then those, those habits fill in the space. And 20 minutes go by before we realize, oh, what was this practice about? Oh, a breath. And we come back to it. Some people will come in with a quite a different attitude and it'll be real driven and sit down and drive their way right, right into that meditation and are so focused and so intent on the breath that nothing else matters. And that also is, might be too extreme in the other direction. So we have to sense for ourselves what are our tendencies so that we look out for those because we might need to incline the other way. The Buddha taught four kinds of effort. Did you expect a list coming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those of you who know my talks know, you know, somewhere in there, there's going to be a list. (laughs) There are four kinds of right effort. There is the effort to avoid unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. There is the effort to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. There is the effort to cultivate wholesome states that have not yet arisen. And there is the effort to, uh, to maintain wholesome states that have already arisen. To avoid, abandon, cultivate, and maintain. These are the four right efforts in Buddhist practice. I think it's important to know that there are things the Buddha said that we can apply effort to avoid. That's a skillful application of effort. What do we avoid? Well, he had a long list. They were all kinds of things. They were lots of physical dangers. Cliffs, sewers, um, debt, intoxication, um, bandits. There were things that one avoided. And we can look into our lives and see, is there anything that I actually need to make an effort to avoid? So that we don't think that meditation practice means we're going to just encounter everything. Well, adjust the effort. Maybe we need to do something slightly different to avoid some of these um, forces. Well, I'm not sure exactly where we'll find a dangerous cliff right here, but you get the idea. The effort to abandon, one of the primary things we abandon are unwholesome states, in particular those five hindrances. What do we cultivate? We cultivate wholesome states. We don't just expect that they're going to naturally arise, but we cultivate them. We apply effort to develop loving kindness, compassion, to develop mindfulness and concentration, to develop wisdom. And once those states have arisen, We don't just say, okay, I'm done. We apply effort to maintain them. 
The interesting thing when we start to work with these four kinds of effort is it's a different quality of effort to abandon an unwholesome state than to maintain a wholesome state. The actual way we engage with our effort is quite different. And so we need to have that flexibility and that skill to recognize what is the state that's present and how can I bring the right appropriate amount of energy to it. Because often unwholesome states require very strong diligence. But if we bring that same strength to the maintaining of wholesome states, say metta, then it's, um, it kind of blows them away or dashes through them. It, it doesn't quite fit. It doesn't quite fit. So it, there's, a, there's a real difference in the quality that sustains a, a, a force, a sustains wholesome states, then abandons. Those are probably the most extreme ones. Uh, but you'll, you'll sense when you start to just ask yourself the question, what is the appropriate quality of energy right now, of effort? How can I engage in this skillfully? So there's avoiding, abandoning, cultivating, and maintaining. And to sustain a meditation practice, we're going to need all four from time to time. However, there also were cases where Monks and nuns, particularly in the time of the Buddha, even lay people at the time of the Buddha, had extraordinary spiritual experiences, even enlightenment experiences, just in a moment of hearing the Dhamma. Without years of rigorous training, without long meditation processes, sometimes apparently without doing anything at all. I think these cases happen, and they're inspiring. But I kind of figure, if this hasn't happened for us, then we might as well do something. We might as well use the energy that we have. If we're not abiding in a perpetual realization of our freedom, moment by moment, day in and day out, then some effort is sensible. Because to wish for enlightenment is not enough. Aspiration energizes our path, but it is not a substitute for actual practice. Wishing does not replace the path. The Buddha described this in a wonderful discourse in the middle-length discourses, where he used the example of trying to squeeze, trying to create oil or by squeezing sand, or trying to get milk by pulling the horn of a cow. It doesn't work. It's not the correct method. He says no matter how much we want milk, if we're pulling the horn of the cow, it's not going to produce milk. No matter how much we want oil, If we're grinding sand, we will not get oil. So we have to also know the correct method. So we need to pull the udder of the the cow or grind sunflower seed or peanuts or something that will produce oil. 
some people may rarely wish, may, may rarely reflect on that wish, that desire, that longing for peace, for enlightenment. But in a rather seamless and calm way, they diligently practice, maintain a daily practice, attend periodic retreats, really look into their minds and as much as they can, free the mind from unwholesome things and cultivate wholesome. Steadily, the practice develops. And little by little, we realize that what used to cause us great anguish, reactivity, and suffering is simply not a disturbance or a problem in our lives anymore. They have developed the path. They have found the way. And even without the wish to be enlightened, that peace will develop. Sometimes effort gets confused with controlling. Because we apply ourselves and try, we think that we might be able to control what happens to us. But as Sharon Salzberg says, we can only do the practice. We cannot make it work. So we need equanimity to be present with whatever unfolds from our efforts. The simple practice of avoiding cultivating, avoiding, abandoning, cultivating, and maintaining with a spacious heart is the path for freedom. So as you investigate effort, once in a while shift your view beyond the relative considerations of the path, beyond adjusting, beyond improving, beyond that, 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 that pendulum back and forth, of effort and ease, more or less, disciplined or permissive. Peek now and then into who or what it is that is efforting. Who or what is doing anything? Where is the agency who is meditating? What can our efforts affect? And what is changeless? unaffected by even the best of our efforts. What is known beyond the touch of doing and not doing? Because freedom will not be known on either side of a duality, not on the side of effort or of non-effort. When we know freedom without needing to distinguish between doing and not doing, we will have the freedom to do and to not do, both and neither. Let's have a few minutes of silence, please. 